chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. We're actually going to read um, verse, beginning in verse 14 through verse 13 of chapter 7. Uh, so uh, if you are able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Uh, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite, Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi, uh, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, uh, Amram, uh, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elishaba, uh, the daughter of Amenadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians, the, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we pray that you would indeed break the bread of life to us, uh, that our spirit might truly pant for you, O living word, O Christ our Savior. Uh, Bless the reading, the hearing, uh, the proclamation of the word of truth to our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Perhaps there's uh, more than one or two of you who um, are into, in some way or another, uh, into military history. Um, I'm not... I know there are plenty of people that, that read books on the histories of this war, that battle, and they learn sort of all the intricacies and details and the plans and preparations and things that that went into that that battle or that war, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, That's not really my thing. I've never, but I'm pretty sure. So I I think I'm on safe ground when I just jump out there boldly and say, this is what you do. I'm pretty sure that when you're getting ready to go into battle, you make a plan. Like you've seen in movies when when military leaders sort of gather around the big map table and the, and somebody's got long sticks and they, they push the little tank models and the people models and the horse models and they're talking about you're going to attack from this angle and attack from that angle and if somebody comes from over here then you've got to come this way and they're kind of pushing the people around. That's the, the big map table is the big you know, the battle planning table. We gather around this table, we sort of make a plan, and then we go out and execute. And you got things like, you know, if things don't go well over here, then this is what we're going to do. And if things don't go, you know, you got to have all these sort of contingencies, all these plans sort of laid out. I think in a lot of ways, that's what this passage is. What we see is the, the key figures, if you will, if you'll allow me to reduce God to a key figure in this passage, Um, is gathered around the big map table and making a plan for the battle that they're about to engage in. Because if you recall, we pointed out a couple of weeks ago that Pharaoh has jumped into the ring with someone and not realizing he's fighting a battle he doesn't want. He's, He's... issued a challenge to the God of heaven and earth and and dropped the gauntlet, as it were, and asked him, bet him, I bet you can't take me. And so he's jumped into war. He's jumped into a battle that he doesn't want. And what we read in this passage are the, the plans made around the big map table as they go off into battle. 
God prepares to wage war against against Egypt and against her gods and against Pharaoh himself. And the, the assignments are being given out to Moses and Aaron so that they clearly understand their role. And the first thing I want you to see is that Aaron has a right to participate. You know, genealogies cause us headaches. Genealogies, we frequently read genealogies in the Bible and and we wonder, at the very least, what on earth? A, I can't pronounce any of these names. I I can send you to a website, by the way. Uh, where you can listen to Jewish people reading these passages, so you can hear some of that. Um, I can't pronounce these pronounce these names. I don't know why they're here anyway. And and what use is a genealogy to me? I mean, we have this sort of notion, whether we really admit it, we wouldn't admit it to this exactly. But but we have this notion that there's a hierarchy of inspired scripture. John 3.16, that, that's clearly God's revealed will. Ephesians 2, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, we're all about that. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, we're all about that. But in our, the back of our minds, we think, surely there's no way a genealogy is on par with for God so loved the world. And yet, one of those passages I just mentioned, 2 Timothy 3, tells us that all Scripture is God's Word. It's all been breathed out by God. It's all profitable and useful for our growth in grace. Remember that when you come to the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. Nine chapters of names. Besides those of you that are Southern, uh, understand genealogies perhaps maybe better than most. Uh, You get the whole who are your people conversation. Are we related to some of the same people? Uh, Do we have connections and friends and family so that so that we're constantly having those 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 conversations about who? Our people are. We play that game as Southerners. Just last week, Nancy and Mary Lyles um, went up to Chattanooga. I actually met Mary Lyles' roommate and her mom. And Nancy and, and roommate's mom uh, played the whole who are you game. Roommates from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, roommate's uh, uncle planted a PCA church. Uh, drop in there. Hey, do you know this person? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? Oh, this person's my cousin. This person. And playing the whole connection game. That's part of what gene- the point, the function that genealogies play in the Old Testament. Because to the Israelite community, a genealogy was everything. It was your job description. It was the deed to your property. It was everything to you. You think that's not true? Come back, ladies, to the Ezra study this fall when a genealogy can't be produced and so the job isn't given. 
genealogies were everything to the original audience. But there's something about this one that to us feels out of place. And I think in some ways, even the writer admits as much. Now, he doesn't say it, but he gives us a hint. Because I want you to look at verses 26 to 30 at the end of chapter 6. And you'll notice, for that matter, look at verse 30 and look back at verse 12. They're almost the same. Verses 26 to 30 and verses 10 to 12 are echoes. Verse 26 to 30 are an echo of 10 to 12. It's almost like, you know, with all the, the with Disney, you know, rolling out all the new Marvel TV shows now. You know, every Wednesday night you get a new, is it Loki? You get a new Loki episode released, right? And so at the beginning of each week, you have to watch the, the recap of last week because you've slept several times since you last watched that episode and you don't remember. And so they remind you all over again. It's almost as if the writer says, now let me just remind you of where we were because I know that for some of you, that genealogy knocks your memory a little bit. You don't remember where we left off. So I think even the writer seems to admit that the genealogy interrupts the flow of his writing. It interrupts the flow of the story. So that he has to go back at the end and remind us of where they were, where we were. But why here? Why bother putting it here? Well, look at the, look at the big map table. Who's standing around the big map table as it were? God's there. Okay, we get that, right? We don't. Surely we don't need to examine why he's at the table. I mean, he's in charge of all of it. And we've known from at least Exodus 3 that he was going to be giving the orders and be in charge of Operation Israel Freedom. Moses is there, and, and we know why Moses is there. Because, again, from Exodus 3, God called him from that bush and said, Hey, by the way, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to lead my people out. And if you recall, Moses objected in every way possible. But why is Aaron there? What's he doing in that room? What's he doing standing around the big map table? What gives him the right? This genealogy does. The genealogy is Aaron's genealogy. Okay. They're brothers, right? I mean, so they have the same genealogy. That's kind of how that works, right? But it's Aaron's genealogy. The focus is on Aaron. It's not on Moses. We know Moses' wife. We, we've met kids. We, we did that chapters ago. All we know about Aaron is Aaron. We know that he's... Moses' brother. We, we know there's a sister, but we don't know that because of Aaron. We know that because of Moses. The genealogy focuses on Aaron because it's in this genealogy that his wife and kids are mentioned. Moses' wife and kids aren't mentioned at all. For that matter, notice verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring those people out. Look at verse 27, the end of verse 27. It's this Moses and this Aaron. Aaron is first, 
the first time and he's second the last time. He gets the place of prominence. This is Aaron's genealogy. And he's, for that matter, in the middle of the genealogy, as it were. You get a couple of generations before, you get Aaron, you get Aaron and his wife and sons, and then you get a couple of generations after him. In other words, in many ways, this genealogy justifies for us and to all of Israel that Aaron has a right to participate. Aaron's a descendant of Levi. Aaron's of the tribe of of Levi. He's going to be the priest. It's his sons who are going to serve in that role. He gets the place of prominence in this genealogy. He's welcomed at the big giant map table to participate in this Operation Israelite Freedom. Now, you and I, of course, we know the rest of the story, as it were. We know what's coming. We read through that list and go, some of those names sort of ring an ominous bell in the back of my head. I'm pretty sure I remember Nadab and Abihu, and I'm pretty sure they did something they weren't supposed to do. I'm pretty sure there's some sketchy people in this genealogy. And you'd find Nadab and Abihu try to, try to worship God in a way not prescribed by God's revealed will. Korah is going to lead a rebellion against Moses. So yeah, there's some... Sketchy names in this list. But there's also Phineas who goes to great lengths to preserve the purity of Israel in Numbers 25. Let, let, let me make just two sort of quick applications from this genealogy. The, the first is this. God uses sinners to accomplish His purposes. I mean, you're reminded all over again that these are Sinful people inheriting a sin nature from their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' 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 fathers, all the way back to Adam. God uses sinful people to accomplish his purposes. You know the I'm my own grandpa song, right? The guy sings a song and he tells the story about how he ends up being his own grandpa because of who married whom. And if you, have, if you don't know the song, just go find it. It's kind of funny. Well, n- notice that Amram violates God's law by taking his father's sister to be his wife. Aaron's, Amram, Aaron's mother was his great aunt. You play with the math. And that's just one example. You may very well be a sinner. You are. You may very well be a sinner, but that doesn't preclude you from participating in God's purposes to gather and perfect the saints. That does not mean you get to go, well, I can't. 
I can't engage in this whole reach and equip thing because, I mean, I'm a sinner. I'm going to have to leave that for the people who aren't. This genealogy says there aren't any of those people here yet. Which sort of is the second application. You're reminded in this genealogy that Aaron and Moses aren't the real deliverers. Yeah, they're going to get Israel out of Egypt and they're going to do that eventually, but it won't be permanent and complete and final. They're not the real deliverers. How do you know? I assume you've got the genealogy in Matthew 1 memorized. I'm trusting that those of you who memorized Scripture, the genealogy in Matthew 1 was high on your list. Because I want you to notice something. Uh, Aaron's wife is the daughter of Amenadab, the sister of Nashon. Amenadab and Nashon are ancestors of Jesus. Aaron marries a woman from the tribe of Judah. And her dad, her brother, end up in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. And so you've got this glimpse, this little foretaste, this little reminder that yes, Aaron and Moses have every right to be at the big giant map table with God and, and planning this onslaught of Egypt, but they aren't the true deliverer. In fact, the true deliverer isn't even going to come from either one of them. It's going to come from Aaron's brother-in-law. A completely different tribe altogether. So this passage tells us Aaron has a right to participate. It also tells us that Aaron has a role to play. You do realize that Pharaoh, Egypt has... God's plural. Many, that's M-A-N-Y, not M-I-N-I. Many gods, plural. Of which Pharaoh is one. He thinks himself a god. His people think of Pharaoh as a god. And for that matter, Pharaoh has already admitted as much Back in chapter 5, when Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said, um, Hey, our, our Yahweh has met with us and, and asked us to uh, take our people out of Egypt. Do you remember Pharaoh's response? Do you remember what he said? Who is Yahweh? He didn't mean, I don't know that name. He probably meant, I don't acknowledge his authority. I'm not going to grant him any right to tell me what to do. Pharaoh asked the question, who is God? Who is Yahweh? And that is really what most of the book of Exodus wants to answer. Aaron has a role to play in freeing Israel. The ruler of Egypt has issued a challenge against the ruler of the universe. And so sometimes we would do well to recognize 
the humor in the Bible. Those places where God mocks his enemies. Did you see what happens in verse 1 of chapter 7? The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Except in Hebrew, it's not a simile, it's a metaphor. In Hebrew, there's no like, for those of you that don't understand the difference between similes and metaphors. I will make you a God to Pharaoh, God says to Moses. You know, little old Moses, born in Egypt to slave people. In a basket, in a river, raised by one of a a previous Pharaoh's daughter, who in no way humanly conceivable could ever be considered greater than Pharaoh. God says to Moses, I'm going to make you like God. I'm going to make you a God to Pharaoh. You are going to be the one in charge. You are going to be the one issuing the orders and the commands. But this would-be God has a prophet. And that prophet is his brother Aaron. Aaron's job, Aaron's function, Aaron's role in this operation is to speak on behalf of Moses and God, for that matter, to Pharaoh, he will communicate. He'll be the mouthpiece. He'll be the one saying exactly what he's supposed to say. In fact, he'll be the one with the staff. When they go in and they throw the staff down and it becomes a serpent and that serpent eats all the other staff serpents, then Aaron's the one with the staff. His staff eats all the magician's staff. So Aaron becomes Moses' prophet. Do you remember why? See, back in chapter 3, uh, when, when Moses did everything he could to object to uh, God's call on his life until ultimately, finally, the last objection was basically, no. You, you got the wrong guy, no. And, and yet here he is, several chapters later, doing exactly what God called him to do. Part of his objection was, I don't talk good. I'm not good at the whole talking thing. Like I don't get in front of people and I don't speak. In fact, he even alludes to the burning bush. You already know this. You've already figured this out. Not because you're God and you know this, but just in our conversation, you know this. But there's a word used here. And it's used back in verse 12 of chapter 6. Notice in verse 30, Moses says, I am of uncircumcised lips. That's an interesting word choice. Everywhere else in Scripture, it refers to being an outsider, uh, a sinner, uh, a rebel. 
someone who, who doesn't belong because they're they're outside because they're uncircumcised. They don't they don't belong to Israel, and and so it's got this sin outsider um, uh, implication to it. Now, to be fair, most commentary commentaries I could find all just assume Moses don't talk good. Like that's the issue. He has some speech impediment. He can't find the right word. You know, whatever it is, he's not good at the public speaking thing. But this word seems to indicate that he recognizes something about his sin. Something about his unworthiness. Or or something about Pharaoh will see me as an outsider and therefore I have no right. He won't see me as, as someone to listen to. A foreigner or an outsider. Whatever the case... Aaron is Moses' mouthpiece. He's the prophet. He's going to be the one to speak on behalf of Moses. You, You do realize that if God calls you to a work, your sinfulness is not an automatic disqualifier. Right. I mean, you do realize that if God calls you to a work, he will equip you for that work. And you don't get to hide behind, oh, but God, I'm a sinner. I can't. Because the reality is he deals with that first. If he calls you to a work, he's going to deal with the sin issue. He's not going to make you sinless yet. But if he frees you from the penalty of sin and then calls you to this work, then that penalty no longer disqualifies you. God knows you're a sinner. You're not telling him something he hasn't heard before. You're you're not telling him something that's a, a sudden surprise that caught him off guard. He deals with that in Christ. Look to Christ for your salvation and God addresses your sin problem there. Aaron has a right to participate. Aaron has a role to play. But what we find is that ultimately, Aaron and Moses aren't the ones in charge. Yes, he, God says to Moses, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. I've made you a God to Pharaoh. But he doesn't say, I'm going to make you God. I'm not relinquishing my power. I'm not relinquishing my authority. I'm not relinquishing my right to rule and reign over all of creation. I'm just going to set you up to be someone who is godlike to Pharaoh. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 7. You shall speak all that I command you. Moses and Aaron aren't in charge. Their function, their power, their authority is limited by God's revealed will. What God tells them to do, that they must do and no more. What God tells them to say, that they must say and no more or no less for that matter. They're... Their, their power, their role, their responsibility, their function, their authority, it's 
Yes, they're going, he's going to be Moses, will be like God to Pharaoh, but he's limited. He's ultimately not the one in charge. He answers to a greater, a greater God. He answers to one who rules and reigns over all of creation. Moses and Aaron aren't in charge. Moses and Aaron aren't in control. Did, did, you, did you notice? There's a stark contrast going on at the beginning of chapter 7. Uh, Moses and Aaron are supposed to do exactly what God wants them to do. And that's all. But God does exactly what he pleases. Moses and Aaron are limited by God. God is limited by no one except his own character, his own personality. Let me just make this sort of observation. I intend, uh, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday um, to sort of pause Exodus for one week, sort of. Because one thing that has um, stood out over the first seven chapters of the book of Exodus is God's sovereignty and authority and rule and reign over all things, even in ways that you and I think don't make any sense at all. Like, we would never harden in our minds. Like, it seems... Can we just... We'll just pretend this isn't being recorded for a second. Can we just talk? Does it seem crazy to you that that God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to listen to you. See, that's not the way I would do it. I would do the free Israel faster than creation thing, not slower. Creation, speak... Six days, everything's there. I would say six minutes tops is how long it would take Israel to get out of Egypt. That's not the way God does things. So I intend next week to actually sort of examine the doctrine of God's sovereignty in everything. Even the things that we think surely He's not in control of that. Or for that matter, surely he wouldn't want to be in control of that. So that's the plan next week. But notice the pronouns in verses 3 and 4. God changes the pronouns to first person. Here's the list of things you will do, Moses and Pharaoh. You'll say what I tell you to say. And you'll do what I tell you to do. But for my part, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of of Egypt. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will free them from, free my people. I will stretch out my hand against Egypt and I will be at work delivering my people. I will do all these great things. You can only do, Moses and Aaron, what I tell you to do. I am going to do the rest. And there's an implication there, Moses and Aaron. You might not always like it. It might not go the way you think it should go. 
in God's design, this battle will actually rage on longer than most of us think it should. But notice, I will, verse 5, stretch out my hand against Egypt. And I will bring out the people of Israel from among them. It may not look the way you think it should, but it will look. There will be freedom. There will be deliverance. I will defeat Pharaoh and Egypt and I will bring my people out. Moses and Aaron aren't in charge. They aren't in control. And for that matter, they aren't the point. What was Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 verse 2? Who is this Yahweh of whom you speak? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? What's the point of this battle? It's not just to bring Israel out. It's not just to free God's people. It's also, verse 5, Then the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. God's at work. Yes, He's freeing His people, but He's also glorifying His name even in the eyes and lips and ears of Egyptians. The very people who have been oppressing Israel. God will glorify Himself through this whole process. Opponents to God and His people cannot win. In many ways, this passage, yes, it's Aaron's genealogy. Yes, the focus of the genealogy is Aaron himself. Yes, he's the, the center of it. And it, it talks about his kids and it sets him, you know, gives him the right to be gathered at the big giant map table as they plan Egypt's onslaught. But the passage isn't about Aaron and Moses at all. It's about the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Is that not the aim of our work here on earth? Is that not really the point of, of what we do? Are we not in many ways prophets proclaiming God's word to a deaf, lost world that so desperately needs it? No, they may not listen. No, they may not respond. But that's out of our hands. That's in His and His alone. He might harden their hearts. But we're called to serve and honor and glorify the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. But there's comfort there. There's encouragement there. There's, there's almost a bit of a battle cry there. And it's this. God can't lose. The God whom we serve cannot lose. Those forces out there in the world that seem to be able to put God in a box and, and put His people in danger and, and threaten the existence of the church, guess what? They can't. Christ Himself, himself said, I will build My kingdom. And the very gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it. Deliverance will come for God's people and no earthly power can stand against Him. 
May God grant us the faith, the grace, the encouragement to take the message of the gospel to a world that doesn't even want it, trusting them to his hand and his purposes. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would remind us that we have been called to serve the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Uh, That your word goes forth and it will accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish. It will deliver exactly the people you want it to deliver. And it might in some cases harden some people's hearts. Would you grant us the grace? Would you grant us the faith to take that gospel message out into a dark, dead world that needs the light of Christ, that needs the life in Christ and trust their salvation, trust their response to you. We pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.